Welcome to Brass Taxes. It's me, Caroline Craighead. In this episode, I'm joined again by Russ Garofalo, and we'll share with you our conversation that we had with Chris Mosier. Chris is a Hall of Fame triathlete, an All-American duathlete, and a six-time member of Team USA. He's also a two-time national champion and the first transgender athlete to compete in the Olympic trials in any sport in a category different than their sex assigned at birth. He's the first transgender athlete to be sponsored by Nike, and he was featured in his own Nike commercial, which debuted on primetime during the Rio Olympics. Chris is a leader in advocating for trans people in sport, and he created the site transathlete.com, which is a resource for students, athletes, coaches, and administrators to find information about trans inclusion in athletics at various levels of play. We are very happy to have Chris among our impressive and inspiring clients at Brass Taxes, and we'll get to that interview a little later in the episode. First, though, a little reminder that if you need to get your taxes done, you should head over to BrassTaxes.com to get started. You'll find a price estimator there, and the prices do go up as we get closer to tax day, so the sooner you get in there, the better. And if it's your first time working with us, remember that you can use the code POD25 to get a $25 discount. All right, before we hear from Chris, I'm going to bring in Russ, and uh, we have a little chat to follow up on the saga that I talked about last week. I can give an update on the PPP loan, but it's really just that, like, everything sucks (laughs) Uh, and is still not figured out, and I don't know. I should say, I know that there's a lot of people who have far larger problems, but I also know that my problem of not being able to get the $18,000 of a forgivable loan that I am eligible for uh, is not just my problem. Like that there's so many freelancers, so many people who are uh, self-employed, maybe, and and so little education about it too. There's so many people who qualify for this who don't wouldn't even think that it's something that's aimed at them just because of the language that's used about it. I think of what you're going through and the challenges with this stuff is like, yeah, totally. There's there's other more pressing like issues in the world, but it's an indicator of what societally is going on and is available to us. And I think a lot of what's happening during COVID and and because of it is is pointing at the lack of infrastructure mm-hmm. like so many of these programs are just like are just based on how do we get people money as quickly as possible and also keep them from permanently leaving their jobs positions businesses like i just hopped out of the meeting for uh the brass taxes group meeting and we were just discussing the the bill that just passed the senate still has to go back to congress to get approved and you know the the biggest change for us doing taxes is that the first ten thousand dollars or so of unemployment won't be taxable income if you earn under a certain amount, one hundred and fifty thousand or seventy five thousand, and and that's a change from previously all unemployment. All unemployment was taxable, taxable by federal government, but it wasn't taxable by California. It is taxable by New York, um, and so it just varies. So. You know, just the amount of things shifting around in the moment. And so now we're waiting for it to go back to Congress. It'll probably get accepted. And what does that mean for 
the goal of just getting people money as quickly as possible for them to pay for their lives, for them to keep their 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 businesses alive, for them to keep paying rent, for all these things. It's like the problems you're going through, I'm having with all this are just indicators of the 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 challenges and the the lack of a system to get this money to its end result, which is to keep us spending money to keep the economy going. It's not clear what the rules are on that first 10,000 of unemployment not being taxable. It's not clear what the states are going to do. Meaning that every state who collects income tax has their own rules about what's taxable and what's not. Yeah. So, so all the, and all the states right now are really poor. Right. And it also brings up the issue of like, it's March 7th right now. Mm-hmm. Like we've filed hundreds of tax returns. What happens with those people? Do they all need to amend it? Like the IRS already has all that data, but is their system capable of just saying, hey, here's some of the tax you just paid back? Um, do they have the infrastructure for that? Like could just be like, nope, you have to manually amend all of it. So it's like, that's an additional workload to us. You know, what, are we going to charge the client? And like, the IRS is already backed up, right? Like I know people who have- They're still backed up from 2019. Yeah. yeah. Um, I just looked it up. This is an article from like mid-February, February 18th, so three weeks ago, and the IRS still has 11 million unprocessed returns from 2019. That's insane. <laughs> so, I mean, there's people still waiting for their refunds. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's, very, it's very crazy. Um, just the amount of things going on and like, so you're experiencing- <laughs> Right. So one of these things going on. And it's funny because I, you know, like in a previous episode with Phil Galfond, he, we talked about how, like when he was trying to teach me poker or when I asked him to teach me poker, he was like, I don't think you have the right temperament. And, uh, and that's true. And I've done a lot of work on myself since then. But, uh, what he's talking about is bubbling up for me right now, where I am telling everyone in the most, uh, pointed language that I can. <laughs> what an injustice this is that I'm suffering. And I'm, you know, I've got, I, actually, it was your suggestion to reach out to my congressperson. So I, I wrote and said, hey, you know, this is a, a something that's happening that shouldn't be happening. My And that was before my application was denied. So if you listened last week, I applied for a PPP loan now that there's new rules. But then I found out that the new rules were not in effect yet. But what was in effect was this two-week exclusive period during which only the smallest businesses were allowed to apply. So all these large companies that have a bunch of uh, employees were being held off until that expires on March 9th, this coming Tuesday. Uh, And so this new rule uh, that advantages sole proprietors and other very small businesses says, hey, you can calculate how much of a loan you are eligible for based on your gross income from 2019, not on your net profit. And we talked about that last week. Um, so it increases the the loan amount that, that people like me are eligible for. Everyone is advantaged by these new rules, and yet they <laughs> said, okay, apply now. Hurry up and apply. But wait, the new rules aren't in place yet. But hurry, because this window is ending, but not yet. <laughs> and so that's what's happening right now. And uh, And they ended up uh, denying my loan application because I had asked for the the amount that I'm eligible for based on the new rules, and the new rules weren't in place yet. Now they're in place, but the SBA 
said, talk to your lender. The lender said, we're waiting on the SBA to, to roll out new guidance. The SBA said, we have issued the new guidance. The bank said, we are reviewing the new guidance. And there's, you know, just a morass of, of uh, terrible information. Meanwhile, press uh, is just pumping out misinformation about it and like, hey, if you're a sole proprietor, go ahead and, you know, get your application in now. And there's there doesn't seem to be any accountability. And that's what's driving me insane. And so I tr I'm trying to be a squeaky wheel about it, but knowing that it's, you know, it's not going to do anything. You know, these large companies that are applying for PPP relief that goes towards you know, keeping up with payroll, uh, all of their employees are benefiting from their large company having an accounting department who applied for the loan, who got the money because they're preferred clients of their bank or their lender because they're a big company with a lot of money. Uh, but on, so they're kind of at the peak and then it slopes down and, and there's a long tail that extends out of all of these individuals who each have to file their own application. And and I looked at the stats on it last year or in 2019, 57 million Americans freelanced. So it's not this small number of people who are affected by this. It's a huge number of people who are affected by this, but with no centralized advocacy group. Like there's no one saying, hey, for all of us, we're going to put one massive application in. <laughs> Everyone has to kind of fend for themselves on that long tail of the um, just the, the teeny tiny individual businesses. Um, yeah, I just looked it up. The number of businesses with 20 employees or less is 98% of all the businesses in the United States. Wow. So less than 20. So this special window right. is for companies of under 20. So that just indicates how much crowding out there is. <laughs> If 98% of businesses are are having trouble or like need a special window, that's so weird to be that large a majority yeah. and be like that minor of a voice. Yeah. Yeah, right. And for it to be like all other days on the calendar <laughs> like, yeah. are just yeah. for this 2% of the larger businesses that have more than 20 employees and then squeezed in this two-week window is when we're giving preferential treatment to 98% of applicants for this. And there's some other insane stat that I don't have it in front of me, but I think only 7% of people who are eligible as sole proprietors applied for PPP last time. So, you know, that Yeah, there's there's so much half information and misinformation or uh temporal information, information that may have been accurate at at the time of writing. Yeah. That by the time it even comes out is is not accurate. Right. Um, right. Yeah. I. I mean. And I think I just keep coming back to all these things are like we don't have an infrastructure and we're just building it on the fly mm -hmm. out of desperate need. And there's uh, a and there's you know what what's boiling up in me and that I'm I have seen in in our clients a lot. Uh, you know, it, it, in previous years about previous things, but uh, there's a need for to believe that someone has the answers and someone can help, that you can complain to the right person or just like pull on the, the right person's sleeve and say, can you just tell me what the answer is? Or like, can you help me with this? And and right now, it doesn't feel like there's anyone. My congressperson's uh, staff 
staffer who answered me was like, oh, I haven't heard about this. And and then, yeah, that number of like 98% of people, <laughs> 98% of businesses are affected by this. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think it gets back to our feeling that of of strategic disenfranchisement yeah. of for like feeling like your voice doesn't matter is why people don't call their congressperson or whatever. It's like, well, why I'm not going to piss into the wind and just waste more of my time. I'm already trying. I'm already struggling to get this thing, you know, this PPP loan filed. Never mind, like get the whole system to change. And yeah, I think that's why, you know, it it feels like we're an like we we're living in an oligarchy and not a democracy because otherwise it it wouldn't matter. Because like you're still a voter and you represent this many voters, um, but it's like, well, if you can get one well placed TV commercial, you can overwhelm, you know, the the two thousand upset Carolines, <laughs> and and get enough votes that it doesn't matter. So right, um, oh, yeah. really burns me it, up. It, <laughs> uh, I have the same reaction to feeling uh, unjustly treated. Yeah, I think that was part of my like a lot of the brass taxes ethos is like, it offends my ego mm-hmm. that I don't matter as much as someone with more money. Right. Um, right. So I'll just yell louder for longer. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, um, it seems like the best way I could use my white male privilege. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so I'm going to yell about that until it happens. But it's not putting anyone else down. Like in this instance, you know, with right. this kind of money, right. it's like, no, I, I, I'm just saying that this whole structure is uh, real messed up. It, it, it shouldn't be the case that the full burden of get relief falls on individuals. Because again, you know, like now I've uh, a large part of my week was trying to figure this out, trying to contact the right people, trying to get the messaging clear. Um, and then knowing again, like how many other people who are not as savvy about how this stuff works, uh, who are affected by this, who need that relief, who either don't know how to navigate this as I don't know how to navigate this, or don't even know that it's available to them because the messaging mm-hmm. has been so poor. Yeah, I view it as with all my privilege, this is what I'm experiencing. Yeah. Like th- I'm dealing with this and I have every advantage. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Um and this is the state of things. Right. Um is it isn't it going to end up being a good thing that your application got rejected? I mean, it's barring the annoyance of time. Uh it's a better thing than if it was still pending, I would not be able to reapply. And so gotcha. my bank said So it's better to get the rejection. Yeah, my bank said go ahead and reapply and then I went through their application process again. And and it's, you know, they don't have a little pop-up that says like we haven't changed it yet, don't bother. So you have to go through yeah. pages of the application before you get to where it again asks for your net income instead of the gross. Uh, and so that's when they said we're still processing the changes. That's right. Yeah. So And when does the window close? Tuesday. What day is today? Sunday. Yeah. So, Jesus. So that's the problem is that it's like, yeah. okay, great, take your sweet time. <laughs> but <laughs> this window closing is a big big deal because then past Tuesday all these larger companies that have better yeah, relationships of with companies. the bank. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And who, you know, and they're not better. They're not more deserving of the money. They just have more resources in order to secure it. And what the money is for is all the people who work under them. So we are advantaging a system where there's a s- strong and large employer-employee relationship, but in a world where more and more people have been pushed off of payroll and are 
self-employed either by choice or not. You know, in my case, I have a pretty full picture of of what it means to be self-employed. And so I got it. But a lot of people don't. And, uh, and a lot of people would prefer to be employed so that they don't have to go through this process themselves, that there's someone whose job it is <laughs> to apply for this money on their behalf. And that's the case with uh, when you are an employee of an employer. But when you're self-employed, it's all on you to know about this, to know how to apply for it, to know that it's not you when you're getting stuck, and to put hours and hours and hours into trying again and trying a different way and trying at the right time and hoping that the window doesn't close before you finish trying. Totally frustrating. Yeah. You know, when I see stats like this, that like 98% of businesses have under 20 employees, like, like what my understanding is that the economic drivers of the community or of the, even the U S like the GDP are the small businesses. Mm -hmm. But my impression even of being a, one of those businesses is that I'm nothing. Like, like my voice doesn't matter. Like my 13 employees and me don't matter. Mm -hmm. Like the main mover of the GDP, the and the the country and the world is the Amazons, the WalMarts, and like, and yeah, I mean, I yeah, I think you said it well that like there are. There, there is no advocate. It, it's interesting to talk about the the trials and tribulations, and you know, typified by the fact that most people don't even know this exists. Right. Like we're struggling with making things happen, but like, yeah, like you, you know, your stats on who's even applying, right, is shockingly low because that's like, because with the lack of an infrastructure that serves the individual who's a business, then you know, you're you're just disadvantaged in even trying to find the information. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, and, and I, you know, I was looking places like I went to the freelancers union to see if they were, you know, uh, telling anyone about it because by the name, you would think freelancers union <laughs> has this. Sounds like a union yeah. of freelancers. And I, I, they do a lot of great work and I, it's the the way that I had health insurance pre-Obamacare when I lived in New York. Yeah, and uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of the freelancers union, but the, it's, it doesn't fill this hole of who is, you know, the person who's golfing with the lawmakers on our behalf, you know, like who's the person who uh, can point to the 57 million Americans who freelanced in, in, in 2019 and say, I represent them and we have an issue uh, because each individual person doing it on their own is, is, is not, uh, not cutting it. And it's such a diverse body of uh, different types of work and what that looks like. You know, some people are like uh, moonlighting. Some people are working for these larger companies that have, you know, like shifted people off of payroll into contract positions. Some people are, you know, just dipping in and out of the job market. Uh, it's it it's not a cohesive enough group to say like this is who we are, uh, and that severely disadvantages us in in cases like this where uh, a lot of us are affected by. Uh, shitty legislation <laughs> or a shitty rollout of uh, of how this is, you know, uh, being applied, and and yet it's all just little tiny voices like help, help. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if, yeah, like a, a, you know, if if the advocacy could be so broad based to make those people want to join together because a lot of this work is sold as like the nobody tells me what to do mm -hmm. like i don't have to you know but you know we're we're ultimately talking like about like a voting block or a union mm 
Um, and for the majority of our clients, like most of us accidentally became businesses. Mm-hmm. Like even starting the tax business, I was just like, I just started getting paid and people just handed me checks. Right. And it's like, poof, you're a business. Right. And, uh, you know, so it'd be, yeah, it'd be fun to start like the accidental uh, business union <laughs> advocacy group. Like, but I don't want to like do our, this union. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like our cohesion is that nobody meant to be yeah. here. <laughs> the, is this the right is this meeting right? union? <laughs> is this 3A? They told me to go to 3A. I don't know. <laughs> 3A? Yeah. Am I in the right building? Yeah. Union. Um, Am I in the right building union? That is the name. I love that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think part of the advantage is the uh, disparateness of that of this or, or like the the lack of apparent cohesion mm-hmm. like has a divide and conquer aspect that like, well, as long as you can keep these people from talking and maintaining them as individual voices, they can't have any significant impression on legislation, voting, et cetera. Um, right. Like we can't organize a general strike of all freelancers. Like even just getting the message right. out. <laughs> anyway, it's all frustration. But um, I was complaining to my dad about it and he was like, you have to run for office. And I was like, no, I don't. This is the whole point is I don't want to do all this stuff. <laughs> it was like, I want representation. Right. I don't want to represent, <laughs> to represent yeah. my f- views so I don't have to be there <laughs> physically. The problem is I don't have someone <laughs> doing that for me. Not that I want to do it. Yeah. But I guess that's how it happens, you know. People get frustrated and then take it into their own hands. And speaking of advocacy, Chris Mosier, a tour de force, yeah, of of self advocacy. I don't know. Yeah, maybe that's great. We just need to up our game. We could potentially make our voices loud enough that we make people want to move, or people just start listening to like to us by default. The same way, like if Chris speaks things start to move. God, I like he's built himself into that. I didn't even think about what a great segue that is into <laughs> talking to Chris because yeah, he's someone who was like, I experienced stuff that I should not have experienced. And in order to try to, in fact, uh, it's a, his motto is be who you needed when you were younger. And so he's like being his own advocate for his younger self and mm-hmm. for all of the other people who are uh, trans athletes. And, uh, yeah, what an inspiration that... <laughs> You actually can affect change if you actually do. If you're not seeing that anyone else is doing it, suit up, get it done. I mean, it takes. Well, yeah, I bet it takes a lot of work. Yeah, like he's also, like I think part of what I what why why I love him and I'm impressed by him is just like purely athletic feats where I was like, this guy is just amazing. You know, like there's something uh, that just cuts through everything to be like, like just just amazing like f- like feats of physicality and uh but yeah he's taken that work ethic and moved it toward his advocacy work and yeah now he's just become this voice that is moving the needle just by the actions he's doing um so yeah maybe maybe we can aim for that for the trials and tribulations of the accidental self-employed this is it's on the right day right i'm in the right place yeah <laughs> <laughs> Union. (laughs) What we're trying to do is, I describe it as like raise the bar, point at the bar, and beat the bar, Mm -hmm. or exceed the bar. And I just think the expectations for how this should feel to have a conversation about money and discuss it is 
people are just ready for a terrible experience. So when they don't get that, they're very happy. But I'm often, I often tell coworker employees, I'm like the bar is really low. Like, it's really low. <laughs> yeah. For me, I remember I was doing my taxes uh, using like the at home um, software for years, and it was so challenging um, as somebody who had a, even as someone who had a full time job and a couple of side jobs, um, and then when I combined my taxes with my wife's, um, sitting there, I would just dread having to do it. I mean, it would be to the last week that I could possibly pull it off, you know, wait until the last minute. Um, and when I was picking up more side jobs and when I was transitioning into being a full-time athlete, I was like, I need help. <laughs> like I just, uh, too many 1099s. I'm, I'm speaking a lot across the country. I don't know how this all works. So I, I actually found you because I put out on social media and asked for anybody who had a good, um, you know, good folks for doing freelance work. And somebody suggested you. And the way that you got me actually was going to your website and starting to fill out the form and seeing that you ask for pronouns, um, which is such a simple thing, but blew my mind. And this was, I think I've been doing my taxes with you for four or five years now. Um, blew my mind because, you know, particularly at that time, no industry was making that a common practice. And, you know, particularly, talking about finances. And so that, that did it for me. Like that was, uh, an indicator of what you were about and how I would be treated. And that was the bar for me and you've exceeded it. <laughs> Again, so low. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. To ask pronouns. Um, yeah. yeah, now we would say that, but I mean, I think like, um, yeah, I think we all have reservations about talking about money. That was something that certainly in my family, I grew up like, you know, you don't talk about politics, religion or money. That was kind of like mm. the thing, even in my relationship, my wife and I didn't really talk uh, finances for a long time. Like we've maintained independent finances and, and have great agreements about how we pay for shared items and things like that. But, um, it took us like a long time to, to have that, that conversation. And I think it was, you know, in part because of, my weirdness about money and how I was raised and how we talk about it or don't talk about it. Yeah. I'm not a partnered person and I am always fascinated by like, that's such a, you know, it's already being in a relationship brings up all the, you know, the vulnerability and uh, you're, you're showing yourself in an intimate way. And then to uh, that's such a scary thing of like, am I doing money right? <laughs> that, uh, and, and do yeah. I, how much do I, uh, want to share that part of my, you know, sovereignty and, uh, and my own, how I deal with money is such a personal thing. Uh, yeah, that always has seemed really interesting to me in terms of how people approach that when they approach that. And then what, what resources are available to even know, how do you have those conversations in a safe way? Yeah. The first, the way it came up was actually, we needed to have a joint bank account in order to be um, to, in order for my wife to get health insurance as as my partner when I was in New York City, and this was before I transitioned, um, and you know we were, had domestic partnership at that time or what whatever they would call it under HR policy, and so um, we needed a shared bank account, and that was like the real moment that all of this sort of bubbled up. I was like, can I just put your name on mine, but don't touch anything? Like. like <laughs> <laughs> and, and that worked fine for us. Oh, okay. <laughs> nice. I'm not sure if you feel this way. Part of my thinking behind the podcast is that we we all feel like 
like unmoored. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's almost like I don't know what I'm doing with, like, I don't know what role money plays in my life. Where I think that stuff gets brought up when you're when you're coupling and discussing, like, well, I want some money that you don't look at that I could just do whatever I want with and not feel weird. I mean, it's funny. We didn't even have that conversation. It was more like we both had jobs and and we had bank accounts and our money went in and and whatever we wanted to spend our money on was fine as long as we had our shared expenses. And we were very fortunate for the time. um, I think it was the time when I first started with you, actually, where I had been working a full-time job at a college. And so my housing and utilities were all paid for. And so that, you know, alleviated a huge expense for us and gave us a lot more, you know, disposable income slash money we could save or put towards other things. And so I think that we just found a nice balance of saying there was actually never the assumption that we would go into a a joint bank account and have one pool of money and have an allowance or anything like that. It was like, you work hard for your money, your money's your money and whatever you want to do with it is totally fine. Chris, in your uh, profession, as a a professional athlete, like, is there a a track? Do people talk about like, okay, here, here's what you can expect to earn along the path of your career or certain milestones that you get to? And are they tied to performance or like, how does that, how do you plan for your life in, in sports? You do other things. <laughs> that's, that's it. That's basically it. You know, even for certainly not in my sports. Um, so my sports are duathlon and triathlon. So swim, bike, run, run, bike, run is duathlon. And then most recently in January of last year, I was in the Olympic trials for race walking. Uh, all three of those are not lucrative sports in terms of finances. Uh, and certainly not at, at my level. So, you know, for folks who are going to the Olympics, who actually make an Olympic team and win a medal, there's some money in that. But everything else is sort of from endorsement deals, from sponsorships and, you know, some in-kind donations and, and products and things like that. And so um, my and I just had this realization literally last week where I was telling someone how I, about finances, uh, it's like, wow, I just listed six other ways I make money and none of them are playing sports. <laughs> so, so being an athlete is, is a job, but it's also, you know, sort of a job that allows me to make money in other areas. And so that's by having speaking engagements, by doing advocacy work, by doing consulting for sports companies, and then, you know, in this weird new world doing social media influencing or ads, you know, on Instagram and things like that. So um, there are multiple other ways that are the ways the finances come in, but strictly by athlete, by being an athlete and performance, you know, there's not a lot of cash in that. (laughs) Right, right. Well, with like sponsorships, are they tied to particular performance goals or is it like does that feel like a job if you have a sponsorship yeah certainly for some athletes i think it's tied to performances probably depending on the sport and for uh, running and triathlon and duathlon the you know, things that i'm a part of i've been very fortunate that my sponsorship by nike is not based on performance or expectations of outcomes or even expectations of a certain number of races a year you know a lot of it is is um it's related to my identity as an athlete and the areas that I'm in. And so, you know, I think that there's 
value in having me on the roster for a number of reasons. I don't have to win a gold medal to maintain that sponsorship. So I've been very fortunate in that You know, for the last five years, my support from them is not related to output of racing. And it's also, and, and I would say a lot of athletes, you know, only one person wins in a race. <laughs> so if every athlete was dependent on, on strictly on winning, not a lot of people would be sponsored um, or have, you know, deals with uh, companies. And so, yeah, yeah. I think it was maybe, was that when you had uh, the, the commercial that you did with Nike, I think may have been that year that you came to do your taxes for. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, so that's obviously something where it's like uh, a big deal <laughs> um, and mm-hmm. uh, raises your profile and also uh, pays well as well. Um, it, it seems like that's such a, was that a, a step up uh, at that point? Had you been like working towards that for a while? In my mind, I was working towards it for a long time. In in actuality, like the fact that it happened was was almost a surprise. But, um, I yeah, I mean, it was a huge step up in terms of profile, in terms of you know that year, in terms of of income. You know, having an extra uh, commercial on on your taxes is a good is a good uh, position to be in. And that was also the same year that I moved from full time employment to then just doing uh, consulting work and um, being 1099 on everything. And so, you know, there was a huge shift in that in figuring out, okay, so I don't have steady income now. Everything is based on gigs. Everything is based on, you know, a deal here, a deal there. And how do I put that all together to make sure that I have enough money each month and, and that I have, you know, made what I kind of expected to make at the end of the year? Was that process or what was that process like for you going from like a steady W2 gig to, you know, um, pulling the trigger to say, okay, I I think this is going to work, but there's always a bit of a wing and a prayer in that process of like, I I think something will happen later. I just, but you also have to be available and free to take that job when it comes up. So, um, can you talk about what that, what that felt like, how, confident were you? I was building towards that for a very long time. And I was hoping, you know, that to make that leap out of full-time nine to five employment. And also in that job, while it had so many benefits like free housing in New York city, um, you know, it certainly was reflected in my salary based on how I was paid in real money. And it also just sucked a lot of time. And so I was on call, uh, basically 26 weeks a year, where I couldn't leave the city, where I was answering calls in the middle of the night. So from a mental health standpoint, from a physical health standpoint, I was ready to leave that job. And and at some point, you know, didn't really care what the money was going to be. I just, you know, it was at that point that mm-hmm. I assume many people get to at some point in their lives of being like, I cannot do this job anymore. And I'm sure that, I'm sure you hear that as a reason for um, making the shift in, in careers. But I was I felt like I was working a full-time job for two full-time jobs for years before me actually leaving that job because I was spending all of my other time farming relationships, working on building my expertise and trying to position myself in a way that would help me get speaking gigs, consulting jobs and other things when I left. And so I didn't actually quit my full-time job until I had landed a big contract for a consulting thing that would I knew get me through most of, you know, the finances that I needed to survive. How many years do you feel like you had had that vision of this is where I want to be? And then the actual time from 
being like, you know, to actually get there. Uh, everything I've seen as I've grown, you know, built something, it, like everything takes much longer than I expected. Yeah, it was a, you know, four to five years for an overnight success, right? Like that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, it was probably about five years. Um, I started I started my website as a, as a starting point in 2013. But before that, I'd already been trying to work relationships and, and I recently found an email that I had sent to somebody in 2011 that was like, if you are talking about transgender people in sports, please contact me. I'm trying to position myself as an expert. <laughs> so clearly I had a good relationship with this person, but you know, I was like trying to build my expertise and, and position myself in a way that, you know, I know it's a very small, a very, 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 very small population of people, a small market of information. And I saw an opportunity for me to use my shared, like my, my lived experiences to share with others in a way that at that time, I didn't know how that could be profitable or how that could be a revenue generating, mm -hmm. you know, situation. But even if it didn't make money in a lot of cases, all the work, I mean, a lot of the work that I'm doing right now doesn't make money. It's still work, but it doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't give me a paycheck. I, that was the work that I was going to do no matter what. And so for me, it was just trying to build those relationships and and watch other people who were doing consulting work to see how they did it um, and, and sort of explore in that way. So yeah, it was like four to five years before I actually left my full-time job that I'd been thinking about that. Yeah. And building it, yeah. Mm -hmm. Is there like a, a, a non-profit avenue as what, like, is there, uh, do you have goals of, of building like a foundation or there being something where uh, it's not just you paying your bills to do to get the work done and to, to be the one consulting and be the one who people come to as an expert, um, but a, a more robust infrastructure knowing that there's not um, necessarily, it's not going to be profitable, but that there will be people wanting to support um, the work that be being done. Yeah, and I think that's one of the areas that I feel I'm lacking in terms of my team or my education, my understanding, is how to make all that happen. My skill set is not in keeping track of money, <laughs> and it's also not in um, in organizing around like organizing anything around that idea. I just know that about myself. I know it from my past experience with, and, and to be fair, like I, I save a lot of money. I, I spend money when I want to spend it. And it's not something that I stress about too much. Um, except in, you know, the last year I have been stressing a little bit about not having jobs just because I know I'm not hitting those yeah. numbers that I was hoping for. But, you know, in terms of like, uh, long-term savings and IRAs and you know financial planning sort of stuff. I feel not well equipped to be thinking about that. So what I've done actually, instead of making a foundation, or and I hope that that is someday in my future, is I've partnered with other organizations that do the work that I want to do that already have established you know the 501c3 and and all of that stuff so i'm on Smart. the board of directors for an organization called point of pride it's entirely run by volunteers who identify as trans or non-binary and we serve the transgender community by helping them you know get access to um, gender affirming garments and surgeries and so you know it's we have a an amazing amount of money that comes in. We fundraise, get grants and all of that stuff. And I've been able to do that passion work of mine. Just, you know, it doesn't have to be under my name. I just wanted to do the work and serve my community. 
Yeah. And I'm sure that, I mean, it also probably does, though, help to position you as an expert where it's like, yeah, I see the work being done. I'm doing the work that's being done. I'm very involved mm-hmm. with the organizations who are um, who are making these things happen. Yeah. Transathlete.com is, is not a nonprofit organization. It's just a, a passion project website of mine that's a resource for coaches, athletes, administrators around trans-inclusive policies at various levels of sports play. And there are often times where it, you know, it would have been beneficial. It would be beneficial for me to be a nonprofit in that opportunity to raise money uh, because there, it's not a, an income generating. Uh, and you know, with that, it's like all of those expenses for the website and for, you know, anything that I need, buying the domain name and and anything that I need in terms of maintaining that come out of my pocket. So that's a, you know, another thing that. As you say that, I'm like, yeah, that would actually, it would be helpful in my work. I could do better work if I had grants coming in or if I had money to to do the work. But a lot of my passion work like that in terms of social justice is just an expense for me. I think for a lot of our clients, they they have a goal in mind that requires money, but our goals are also to think about the money as little as possible because it's not actually what's interesting to us. Um, and I feel the I feel the same way when it's my money. It's like, well, I'm, I, we need money for the business to exist, but I don't actually, I'm like, we're not looking to hack our finances or something or optimize every dollar. Like the money itself is, is a means to an end. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's yeah. before I worked for brass taxes, I was working for a nonprofit and I could see that it was like, oh, there's some people here who their whole job is to go chase the money, you know, and to write grants and to, mm-hmm. to, to fundraise and they don't even touch the rest of the work or they do only in the, like, how can we, you know, show what we're doing in order to attract more money. But that, you know, that's, yeah, a, a separate job from doing the work. And it's uh, props to those people who do the fundraising, because that is not the job that I want. But we yeah. need those people. <laughs> yeah, we need we those need people it. to get that money to do the work. So, you know, they're a, they're a crucial part of any nonprofit or, you know, social justice organization, but certainly not my expertise. Yeah. Yeah. That's a yeah. <laughs> hats off to them for sure. <laughs> Just in, in thinking about us getting a chance to talk, I've uh, uh, Billie Jean King has been one of my heroes for a lot of years, and in one of the like three or four documentaries I've seen on her, she mentioned, um, you know, to get people to listen to me, I, I knew I had to be the best, and I thought that was it was really interesting and in seeing how driven she was to create change and to win, and that those to her were like interlocking fingers in her, in her quest. And I was just curious, uh, if the, the advocacy and the, uh, you know, athletic events, you know, fit together for you. I've been a competitive person since I was a kid. I think, you know, being an athlete is something that's a core part of my identity since I was four years old, basically. And when I started to get involved in more social justice, and, and that was largely because of my own experience in coming out as a transgender man in sports and, and seeing what that pathway was like and how difficult it was, it, sport became a different thing for me. It became a platform for me to do the work that I'm passionate about, which is helping making it easier for everyone who comes after me. So I want to, you know, sort of I want to be a representative of my community, of the transgender community, because a recent study said 80% of Americans have never met a trans person in real life that they know of. 
And if you think about that, you know, you can see how easy it is for people to demonize us or to treat us inhumanely if you don't know somebody with that identity. And so, you know, for me to be an athlete, I think everybody has some relationship to sports, whether they play or not, whether they have a TV or not, you know, there you can bond with your neighbor over your hometown, you know, baseball team, even if you don't like them on every other day of the year. You know, there's something really special about sports that brings us together. And I see that as an opportunity to use that athletic platform and, you know, being a being a great athlete to then talk about the things that are really important, which is living my life every other moment when I'm not in sports. So I think they're they're very closely related. And I, you know, want to do sports as long as I can as a as long as my body can handle it. <laughs> um to you know not just because i i love it but because i love having that platform to talk about the things that are important like athletes in our society have social capital and it, it kind of doesn't matter how good of an athlete you are high school athletes collegiate athletes have social capital they have a platform True. you know that we we look at athletes differently and so there's a little bit more emphasis a little bit more weight in you know having the sponsorships having a, a Nike behind me or a bike company, you know, that does make a difference. And it, it, it legitimizes, uh, you know, my platform in, in a lot of ways. And so that's really important to me. And I think those, those two things are, are deeply intertwined because sport is a vehicle for social change. And I intend to use it <laughs> to, to help the trans community for as long as I can. That's amazing. Do you know, do you have like, are there statistics on how many uh, trans-identifying athletes are in various levels, like now versus, uh, you know, I feel because when you say that, that eighty percent of people say they don't know someone who is trans, like that blows my mind, <laughs> and uh, and also I wonder if yeah, if that's something that you can see the impact of, of like as the world becomes more aware, is that awareness allowing more people pathways into sports i think it is and i think since i came out in 2010 i certainly have seen a a, a change over time uh both socially and in sports and so you know we had the the time magazine cover of laverne cox that was the transgender tipping point you know and sure. and it was the the moment where we had uh caitlin jenner came out and you know that was a sports tie-in um and we started to see positive representation in media and movies where we largely have not. And if anyone is unsure about that, watch the documentary Disclosure on Netflix, which details you know trans representation in the media over time. So I think that there was this moment or this several years where trans identity was becoming more of a uh, topic of pop culture and in mainstream conversation. And that also correlated with with my coming out, with my being more public, with my commercial and the body issue from ESPN and, you know, being more public. And, you know, anecdotally, I can say I'm contacted by young kids every day who see me and want to stay in sport. Um, or have some sort of relationship to my story. And so trans kids are out there and, and some of them are playing sport, but the barriers that are in place for young people, specifically for trans people to participate in sports are so great that many of us, even if we love sports, feel like we have to choose between playing sports and being our authentic self. So 
some people will transition after they play sports or they transition and choose not to play sports because sport is historically a homophobic, transphobic and unsafe space for us. And so, you know, I think how many people we don't have statistics on how many people are playing sports, but young trans kids want to play sports for the same reasons as anybody else. It's like to play with your friends and to have fun and, and be a part of a team. Like it's not, um, you know, so it's not a weird thing for us to play sports, but I think there is a certain point where, you know, even though kids kind of get it more, you know, like, like I feel like people in high school face less discrimination about being trans now than when I was in high school. Like sure. just, there's a greater awareness of it. And it's certainly, it largely depends on who you are and what school you're in and what part of the country you're in and all of those things. But while, while kids seem to have a better understanding, they still have parents and they still have coaches and they still have adults in their lives who maybe aren't as woke and so, or aren't as accepting. And so I think, you know, we're, we're seeing more people feeling comfortable to be their authentic selves at a younger and younger age, which is really cool. And at the same time, you know, we're such a small part of the population. And then those who want to play sports is such a small number of that, that it's, you know, I mean, it's, we're not talking about hundreds of thousands of us you know, sure. playing playing games. Like, I, and I always say, like, not even enough to field a team uh, or to make a tournament or a you know, like a tournament. Maybe there was an all trans hockey tournament that was in Boston last year that was really cool. Um, but you know, like, there aren't enough competitors for me to have my own division. Like, it's it's not an option, yeah. and so. But at the same time, I think, you know, like you said, uh, you know, sports occupies this thing in our culture where it's, you know, and, and it can affect so much else in culture where it's like, I think the what you said about, you know, some kids feeling like they had to make a choice between doing being their authentic selves and do or doing the thing that they love or wanted to be doing that everyone, you know, that all their friends are doing or whatever, like that, that isn't necessarily always going to be like in the sports context, but in so many other, you know, realms as well. Um, so I feel like, yeah, that there's definitely a ripple impact, I'm sure of, you know, if it's normalized here, it's normalized in other places and, um, or at least like destigmatized, but, um, but also sports has historically been so gendered too. Like I think more than a lot of other, you know, uh, pursuits or professions, um, not, None of them are, but but uh, you know you you see that so starkly in sports. Yeah, that ripple effect is very real in terms of the positive impacts of like young people seeing me as an out athlete, being successful, being sponsored, being on Team USA. But also there are these negative ripple effects that happen when we stigmatize and target young people in sports. And so, you know, right now we're in this position where the last two years transgender athletes have really become a target for lawmakers. And at this moment of recording, 17 different states in our country, so over one third of the states in our country, have a bill to try to legalize discrimination against transgender kids playing sports. They're trying to ban trans kids from playing basketball and baseball with their friends. And so, you know, it, it makes me question priorities in our country when there are so many people really suffering you know, from the impacts of COVID-19 and, and where our country is at now in terms of uh, race relationships and, and social justice across the board, that this is the priority is to target this very small group of people. Um, but those ripple effects are real, you know, to, to hear us be talked about in a way that misgenders us and denies the validity of our identities by our lawmakers. 
uh, you know, for young people to hear that they're not valid or worthy of having experiences like their friends, it's deeply problematic and troubling. And, you know, it's a real moment where that has now shifted to be the primary uh, bulk of my work. You know, since schools are not open, uh, mostly I'm not traveling the country speaking. I'm not doing college you know, speeches. I'm not really going to companies and doing things. I'm spending a lot of time fighting lawmakers on trying to discriminate against people like me who are kids in sports. Well, that's uh, very noble work. I'm glad you're doing it. Well, it won't show up on my taxes because it's unpaid. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. All gratis. Yeah, that reminds me of, uh, yeah, Billie Jean King got deeply involved in like the writing of the rules and this this level of bureaucracy and minutia where, you know, I know you've been doing work on, on writing some of those bills and, and um, you know, that is, that is long, tedious uh you know, work to, to get things through committees and vote and, you know, and it's, but yeah, that so much of the work happens on that level where it's like, once you have people's attention, now we have to solidify equality. And what does that look like? Yeah. Is there any, any particular groups? I know you said you've been partnering with organizations who are doing the work and especially, you know, like in uh, pushing against harmful legislation, et cetera. Um, are there any organizations in particular that you think need the support, need people to be aware of the work being done and support where we can? Yeah. On the sports front, uh, Sports Inclusion Playbook is an organization that has been doing a lot of behind the scenes work and Athlete Ally uh, partnered with to do trainings of professional athletes to try to get them more equipped to talk about trans inclusion in sports. And then also uh, Point of Pride, which I'm on the board of directors. Um, we are serving our community and shifted in the last year to uh, really prioritizing um, short-term grants for folks who were impacted by COVID. And that was a really cool shift uh, since doctors weren't really taking appointments for elective surgeries and for, um, you know, electrolysis appointments and things like that, we we shifted that money to provide uh, immediate um, help for people who were impacted. And you know, I think just so so many of us have been impacted. And, and I don't know that it's like, I think about my job and my jobs and don't know that it's going to look the same in the future as it did for the years that I was doing it before. And, you know, a lot of us feel very uncertain about that. So um, that organization is is doing a lot of help right now. Yeah, I thought given your work, it would be fitting to support some organizations that you had in mind. So yeah, we'll send some money their way. Um, yeah, thank you for taking some time out and joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. Awesome. And I, I don't talk about money except for my taxes. So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, not a lot just, of people. Just enough to not think about yeah. it more. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Just... <laughs> well, what you have done is shift my mindset to being like, you know, now looking at it throughout the year, I just recently bought a camper van. Nice. Did you have it built out? It was already built. I actually stayed in it when I was at the Olympic trials. And so it's kind of a special, uh, like uh, memento. <laughs> um, we, we really wanted one and it opportunity happened. And, um, but as I bought it, I was like, Ooh, for my taxes this year. <laughs> like, yeah. So all of those things. Yeah. <laughs> well, you and Lee can get into it when the appointment comes. <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> Lee's been great, by the way. Oh, yeah. We love Lee. Yeah, he's wonderful. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Chris Mosier for being our guest. 
Join us next week when we talk to Tomic 2.0. He's a multi-hyphenate whose work history includes hairstyling and sex work, about which he has his own podcast called Sex Work. In the meantime, make sure that you show us some love, if you feel it, by following, subscribing, and sharing this show. I'm Caroline Craighead, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.